Live from New York, I'm Paula Newton in for Julia Chatterley, and this is First Move. Here's what you need to know. Connecting the dots, investors respond to the Fed's warning on rate rises. Internet outage, banks and airlines hit as the web suffers its second big epic fail in just 10 days. And not a lot of bottle footballers. They uh, leave their sponsors in a spin at the Euros. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. And a warm welcome to everyone once again. This is First Move Live from the New York Stock Exchange. Great to have you with us this Thursday. And this is, of course, the day after the Putin-Biden summit in Geneva. And that all-important Federal Reserve headline, though, is also getting some attention from D.C. Here on Wall Street, U.S. stocks are set to fall for a third day as investors react to the flurry of news from the U.S. Central Bank, suggesting that a strengthening economy might soon lead to less monetary stimulus. A mixed day, however, in Europe and Asia. Fed officials, meantime, suggesting in their closely watched dot plots, remember these, that the first Fed rate hike of a new tightening cycle might come sooner than expected. That would be sometime in 2023, actually looking for two moves possibly in 2023 as opposed to one. Now, the Fed also starting to talk about talking about cutting its $120 billion worth of bond purchases each month. Many saying they should have already gotten on top of that. Fed Chair Jerome Powell, meantime, bending to reality too, hinting that the current rise in inflation might not be so transitory. That's temporary for you and I, after all. The Fed's outlook is less dovish than in the past, and its new timelines create new uncertainty for investors. That said, a brighter Fed economic outlook is obviously ultimately good news for the United States, suggesting that the massive monetary support currently in place for the economy is indeed working. A bit of a disappointment, though, in the U.S. labor market today. Uh, Jobless claims rising for the first time in almost two months. This is curious. Claims once again above 400,000 last week. Let's get more on all of this in our drivers. Christine Romans joins me now. I know how closely you watch all of this data. So much to look at. The Fed says inflation may still be temporary. This was interesting the way they tried to thread that needle. But they really seem to move on the theory that, look, they just don't know, right? They too are waiting to see what the data says. And there's no playbook for this, to be honest. There's no blueprint. We haven't quite turned off the economy and turned it back on again. And all of these supply disruptions seem to be at the core of why the Fed thinks that uh, inflation will be transitory, translation in Fed speak, temporary, and they'll work themselves out. Listen to the Fed chief and what he talked about and what he said about these supply bottlenecks and, and rising prices. If you look behind the headline numbers, you'll see that the incoming data are, are consistent with the view that prices, the prices that are driving that higher inflation are from categories that are being directly affected by the recovery from the pandemic and the reopening of the economy. You know, think about cars and chips, right? These semiconductors that are uh, delayed and backlogged. And so you can't make the F-150 pickup truck. And so car prices are rising and used cars prices are rising, too. That's going to work itself out at some point. And those year over year and month on month uh, inflation numbers that you're seeing in some of these categories are going to smooth out. So we, we haven't seen that smoothing out just yet. Lumber, you're starting to see that. I think it's down again this morning here. Uh, but all of this is supply disruption, reopening disruption that has destroyed 
reported these numbers. And, you know, in terms of the Fed, Paula, I, you know, I'm always searching for the metaphor for the layman for what, what this means, what the Fed is, it means here. And essentially, I heard it best late yesterday. Someone said it's, uh, you know, it's basically last call at the bar, right? The la- they've called last call. You know, the party's still on. You still got another maybe hour or so in the night. But eventually, they're going to close off the beer taps and uh, we're going to have to go back to normal. And that's what we're talking about. And that eventually appears to be at least two years down the road. Yeah, and it's it's interesting, right? Because even at these you know really high valuations across so many sectors in the stock market, you still see that investors are staying there. They're kind of staying put. There certainly hasn't been a huge sell-off. I want to talk to you about the fact that we've had monetary policy doing the heavy lifting for so many yeah. years. Many people are now turning their attention to obviously the fiscal stimulus, obviously yeah. unprecedented in more than a year. And now we may have also a bipartisan deal on infrastructure. Do you think that is closer to being a reality here in the United States? You know, the president was asked about that on his way back uh, from his overseas trip yesterday. He said he hadn't seen the sort of the details of this bipartisan plan where apparently there are 11 Republicans on board with a bunch of Democrats to get something done. It's about a trillion dollars worth. But he said that Ron Klain, his chief of staff, had said that there was room to work with Republicans. So I'm feeling more optimism than I have had in some time. As Dana Bash, my colleague, reported just moments ago on, on New Day, at least they are coming out of rooms where they're talking for for weeks. They hadn't even been talking to each other about what kind of what a deal should look like. And we have known that the president has said from the very beginning he wants to talk. He wants to deal. What appears to be on the table right now is about half less than half of what the president at first proposed. It's around a trillion dollars here. But look, let's talk about the timing. I mean, the Fed yesterday said the U.S. economy will grow 7 percent this year. You look at 10-year note yields, still relatively historically very low to borrow money. There's going to be a lot of arguing about how to pay for it. But at the very least, it seems like a perfect time to do infrastructure, something that's desperately needed in this country, whether there's political will in a very divided Congress to get something done. That's that remains to be seen. Yeah, and as you've pointed out so many times in recent days and months, really, Christine, this is unprecedented, right? So when you look at infrastructure and even start to talk about the labor market and how that might react to that, we have to wait and see because we just have never been here before. Christine, thanks so much for going through those numbers uh, with me. Appreciate it. Nice to see you, Paula. I see you. Banks, airlines, meantime, and the Hong Kong Stock Exchange were hit by a major internet outage this morning. Now, the failure of a key piece of internet infrastructure brought down the company's sites, and it's the second such disruption in 10 days. Anna Stewart joins me now to go through it for us. Now, there's so far, right, Anna, there is no indication that this is a hacking event, but how much disruption did it cause? I don't know about you, Paul. I was getting a little deja vu this morning. Another internet outage. This one also caused by a CDN, a content delivery network. This one's called Akamai. And it largely impacted Asia Pacific. And particularly, it feels like in terms of disruption, banking. This impacted NZ Banking Group, ANZ, Westpac, Commonwealth Bank of Australia. And honestly, this morning's social media was awash with reports of people getting to the checkout at a grocery store, going to a gas station and feeling stranded because they couldn't pay. Some ATMs weren't working. Airlines impacted included Southwest, United, Postal Services in Australia, and also lots of websites, including Amazon and Minecraft. So this wasn't as big a global outage, perhaps, as last week. But in terms of the services that were disrupted, particularly, I think, online banking, particularly frustrating and really quite worrying for people. Paula? Yeah, when you start to hit infrastructure like that, you think to yourself, what is going on here? Uh, This is really testing the limits of the Internet, but it's highlighting what we've talked about is the fragility involved here. Yeah, the fragility. Twice in 10 days. 
And it's largely people getting worried at this stage that a single point failure at one CDN can have such a huge impact for so many different businesses, so many different people, millions of people right around the world. And the idea is here, this could be a target for cyber criminals. You can have a huge amount of impact for just one single point failure. Uh, and the other big concern, Paula, is just the fragility side of things. Just are there enough CDNs? Are too many businesses using just one little company for a lot of internet infrastructure? Should there be more? Should some services like banking or government websites, which of course are so important, particularly during a pandemic, should they have better backup systems? So they come back up and running fast if something like this happens? Should they use more than one CDN? Lots of them actually do. And the good news, I think, from today was this outage, like last week, was pretty quick. Most websites were up and running again within an hour or two. Paula? Yeah, and again, we hope everyone is learning lessons from this and that it's not the hackers that are learning something from this. Santa Stewart, again, (laughs) thanks so much. Appreciate it. Now, with just over a month left to the Tokyo Olympic Games, it appears local spectators could be allowed into the studio, into the stadiums. Now, according to the public broadcaster, Japan is lifting the COVID state of emergency in all but one prefecture, which has, of course, big implications for the games. Lena Wang joins us now from Tokyo to explain all of this to us. You know, this is obviously relief for all of Japan. I know the one prefecture isn't lifting that state of emergency, but still obviously good news when it comes to the pandemic. What does this mean, though, for the spectators? And we should point out international spectators are still not going to the games, right? Yeah, exactly. We already know, Paula, that foreign spectators are banned, but this is the clearest sign yet that there will at least be some fans in the stands. Now, Japan's top medical advisor said that once when this state of emergency measures are completely lifted, Japan will allow up to 10,000 people at venues. So if we're talking about the Olympic opening ceremony, that would still mean more than 80% of the seats would be empty. Now, Tokyo and large parts of Japan have been under a state of emergency since April 25th, but as these COVID cases have come down to a about 2,000 per day. The government is now lifting that declaration on June 20th, but Tokyo and other parts will be shifting into a quasi-state of emergency. Now, Paula, none of these declarations in Japan have been hard lockdowns. They've asked some businesses to close down, to shut down early. So even under these quasi-state of emergency measures, restaurants will still be asked to close early, but they will be allowed to serve alcohol until 7 p.m. But there is major concern here from the health community that these Olympics are going to lead to a rebound in cases as emergency measures lift and more people move around and travel to celebrate and watch these Olympic Games. And the Prime Minister did make in his remarks that while COVID cases are coming down, they're not declining everywhere. And as you mentioned, there is one prefecture, Okinawa, which is not going to be lifting its state of emergency. Yeah, it's interesting here, too, because we have heard a lot of people speak out about the Delta variant, of course, uh, and whether or not that could actually be seen during the Olympic Games. I want to talk to you about the vaccine rollout Uh, has been underwhelming in Japan. You've covered it well. Uh, I know you've been looking into the new push, though, to really ramp up vaccinations. Uh, I see that they may now include a vaccine passport. None of this will have an impact on the Olympics, do you think, Selena? Well, Paula, that vaccine passport is really going to be geared for these business travelers who want to be able to travel internationally as soon as possible. And there has been reporting from local media for the domestic spectators that can go to the Olympics. They may need to show proof of a COVID-19 vaccine or of a negative COVID-19 test. Now, you mentioned the word underwhelming. I think that is an apt description among developed countries. Japan 
is among the slowest in its vaccine rollout. We are just a month away, but still less than 6% of the population here has been fully vaccinated. And it's not a supply issue. It is a lack of medical staff to administer these doses. And while the central government has set up these mass vaccination centers here in Tokyo and in Osaka, many of these local governments are struggling. And I recently took a trip to Kobe where Rakuten, which is known as sort of the Amazon of Japan, it's a big e-commerce tech giant. They have used their own resources and technology to set up a mass vaccination center there. I spoke to the CEO who said that they think they are three to five times more efficient than what the central government has set up. And they hope to use this model they've built in Kobe and set it up around Japan. Now, the prime minister has pledged to speed up the rollout to reach to up to one million doses per day. But Paula, to put that into perspective, even if that pace is reached, it would still mean that by the time the games begin, less than a quarter of the population here would be fully vaccinated. Yeah, it's already too late uh, for the vaccines really to take hold uh, before these Olympics begin. But certainly for Japan, as you said, the private sector now stepping in to make sure that that country does exactly speed up uh, this rollout. Selena, thanks so much for the update. Appreciate it. These are the stories making headlines now around the world. China successfully launched three astronauts into space this morning. Their rocket lifted off from a launch site in the Gobi Desert and docked about six hours later with a module of the space station that's now taking shape in orbit. Now, it is China's first manned space mission in nearly five years. CNN correspondent David Culver is following all of this from Shanghai. You know, how significant is this in terms of China's progress in space? And does it necessarily mean that, look, we are getting ever closer to a very hot space race? I think it means exactly that, Paula. This is a major milestone for China. I mean, this is a country that has poured billions of dollars into what is a very ambitious space program. And in recent weeks, it's proved very successful. They've had a successful mission to Mars, a landing of a rover there, as well as to the moon. But this one was more unique in that it seemed to counter what was uh, really a very difficult situation for China in the space race for many years. And that is being left out of the International Space Station. They were barred from that by the U.S. government. And so this mission essentially said, if we can't be part of yours, we'll create our own. Three astronauts bound for the heavenly palace. That's China's space station still under construction. From a launch pad in the Gobi Desert, the rocket ship dubbed the Divine Vessel blasting off designed to arrive at its destination in just six and a half hours. But at a total length of 55 feet and a living space of just 50 cubic meters, these astronauts are going into orbit in a capsule a bit larger than a city bus. Any claustrophobic thought? Surely forgotten when the men do two planned spacewalks to install equipment on the exterior of the space station. Inside, they'll test the tech in the living area and run experiments. Two more laboratory modules expected to be launched in upcoming missions, with the aims to have its space station fully operational by the end of next year. China wants its own because the U.S. government barred it from participating in the International Space Station project. China says their heavenly palace will be truly international. Foreign astronauts are certainly going to enter the Chinese space station one day. There are a number of countries that have expressed a desire to do that, and we will be open to that in the future. In just the past seven months, China has put a rover on the moon and one on Mars, becoming the second country in history after the U.S. to land a rover on the Red Planet. 
They also plan to send humans to the moon in the 2030s. But for now, these three men will spend three months building the foundation of the space station. We will obey orders and instructions and keep calm while meticulously carrying out the mission. Chinese experts likewise confident in this mission and its safe return to Earth, as the vessel carries precious cargo, along with the pride of a nation, rapidly advancing its work in this new frontier. Paula, a lot of folks here making note on Chinese social media of the timing of this very successful launch. It comes just a few weeks before the country is celebrating 100 years since the founding of the Chinese Communist Party. Paula. Yeah, no doubt a point of pride there uh, for the Communist Party. David Culver, thanks so much for us live there in Shanghai. Still to come on First Move, President Biden says he and his Russian counterpart laid down, quote, the rules of the road. We take a look at this historic summit and shipping delays hit global trade. That means they hit the things that you are buying as well. We take a look at unraveling the congestion on the high seas. Positive and constructive, U.S. President Joe Biden and his Russian counterpart striking an upbeat tone as they described their first face-to-face encounter. Now, President Putin said each side understood the other's red lines. Mr. Biden made very clear that one of his runs right through cyberspace. I talked about the proposition that certain critical infrastructure should be off limits to attack, period by cyber or any other means. I gave them a list. If I'm not mistaken, I don't have it in front of me, 16 specific entities, 16 defined as critical infrastructure under U.S. policy, from the energy sector to our water systems. Now, as you might have expected, Russia's president denied uh, that his country was involved in cyber attacks in America, but said Russia was willing to work with the United States on the issue. As far as cybersecurity is concerned, we agreed that we would both begin consultations on that issue. And I believe that is extraordinarily important. And obviously, both sides have to assume certain obligations there. Joining me now is Heather Conley. She is director of the Europe, Russia and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Good to see you this morning. Thanks for joining us. Now, this summit was likely useful, as we just saying for both leaders for their own separate political reasons. But on this issue of cyber hacking, Biden seemed to indicate that there is, of course, this new understanding. Clearly, though, this will be tested in the coming months. Yes, Paula, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, Previous presidents have tried to form uh, U.S.-Russian cybersecurity working groups. President Trump tried to do that. They don't typically get that far because we have uh, very different views and principles on the use of cybersecurity. Again, we've seen over and over where uh, Russian criminal groups uh, are are a tool. Uh, The state may not coordinate them, but they benefit from them. And so it will be really interesting to see if the Kremlin uh, follows through with these guardrails, uh, this list of 16, but you're absolutely right. We will only know, and we 
perhaps won't know how it's tested, uh, but if they do bump up to, against those 16 critical infrastructure uh, projects, it's going to be a time to see if the U.S. Uh, fulfills its words and its strong rhetoric and to see if there would be consequences for that behavior. Yeah, and, and you point out that this summit, really, in terms of whether it gets results, is a gamble for Joe Biden. You know, you had a real substantive take on that contentious exchange between our own chief White House correspondent, Caitlin Collins, and, and President Biden. It's been playing and going viral around the world. He really snapped when she asked him if he thought Putin could change. You say Biden is sensitive to this for a reason, because he doesn't know if his gamble of actually inviting Putin to the summit is going to pay off. That's exactly right. So we were all scratching our heads a little bit as this summit was announced, uh, particularly as we were seeing in the increase in ransomware attacks, uh, you know, Russian troop movements on uh, Ukraine's border. These were not the right atmospherics necessarily for such a significant summit. Again, all the history and the drama trying to pull uh, from the Reagan-Gorbachev era. They were even using similar language from the 1985 summit. This was a lot of platform and pageantry for Mr. Putin. But President Biden is betting that if we demonstrate respect uh, to the the Russian government, to Vladimir Putin, that then he in turn will respect our demand for their following the rules of the road so we can get that to that stable and predictable language. I think what, what the White House has been so uh, sensitive to, and I think culminating in that in that incredible exchange, was they're not entirely sure this bet is going to pay off. So they just gave great advantage to Mr. Putin, calling him a great power, a worthy adversary, bright and tough, all of those flattery words to get him to respect those rules. If he doesn't respect those rules, then we have a real dilemma. We've given them something, and now we have to enforce our own red lines. Again, Paula, just today, uh, uh, Russian spokesman Dmitry Peskov just uh, uh, highlighted a red line for Russia, Ukraine's membership in NATO. Right. So we're already going to see this is a tough slog. Yeah, and we did notice that Joe Biden really giving assurance on that uh, when asked about if Ukraine was close to joining NATO. So the Russia got what they wanted out of that one as well. Um, and I will point out that Joe Biden was wanging his finger at our correspondent, Caitlin Collins, something that even Vladimir Putin didn't do in the press conference and, quite frankly, has never done with me during tough questions. So y you really saw how he bristled at this suggestion. Heather, before I let you go, I want to ask you about what economic levers the United States has to, to kind of get what they want from Russia in a way. I argue that they're gone now. The U.S. sanctions are, are, are really muted at this point. Energy prices, again, at healthy levels, not where they were, uh, you know, years ago and especially before the pandemic. Is there any other uh, point, a touch point of power there that the United States could use? Well, it's a great question. Uh, U.S. sanctions have been losing efficacy against Russia for quite some time, in part because Russia has been using the last several years to try to self-isolate itself, protect itself from uh, the most crushing sanctions. Uh, but yes, uh, the U.S. does have additional tools. You saw that in uh, the White House's most recently released executive order, which sort of streamlined our sanctions process. Clearly, the next step is going after Russian sovereign debt in the primary market market. Uh, you could potentially see, again, this would this would have to be in sort of the devastating consequences department here, uh, removing Russia from, from the SWIFT bank transfer, going after uh, deep uh, sectoral issues like oil and gas. But again, we would need our European and our Asian partners right. to support us in that. And I don't think we could achieve that. Right. So it you're right, limited pain. <laughs>
Yeah, and that is key, right? The European allies certainly would not go along with that or wouldn't like to. Anyway, uh, Heather Conley, thanks so much for going through this with us. Appreciate it. And uh, we will be right back with the market open when we return. Welcome back to First Move. Online education company Skillsoft is ringing the opening bell here on Wall Street. Meantime, take a look at the indices there. Investors are getting an education in how markets are reacting, or I would argue not reacting, to the Fed right now. Stocks are weaker across the board after the Fed's clearest indication yet that it is set to tighten monetary policy as the economy improves, with rate hikes coming now. As soon as 2023, now rate-sensitive tech stocks getting hit the hardest in early trading. Stocks in the news now this session include German biotech firm CureVac. Now, its shares are down more than 40% in European trading. On news, unfortunately, that its experimental COVID vaccine has a less than 50% efficacy rate in late-stage trials. Now, Wall Street winners, meantime, do include automaker Ford. It is raising its second-quarter profit guidance due to, quote, This is interesting here. Lower than anticipated costs and favorable market conditions. You wouldn't think that given the headwinds on things like labor and supply issues. But there you go. A little bit of an uptick there for Ford, uh, more than one and a half percent. Global shipping, we've been talking about it. Those costs are now spiking as a rebound in consumer demand coincides with severe bottlenecks in freight transport. Now, Some of the world's largest ports in southern China are at reduced capacity amid fresh COVID-19 outbreaks, while ports on the U.S. West Coast are chock full of container ships just waiting to offload a rising tide of imports. Joining us now, Patrick Berglund. He's the CEO of Zeneda, which tracks global cargo flows and prices. You know, we're not used to hearing uh, about shipping, really, until it becomes a problem. You make the point that the root cause of these challenges really started back years ago. But, of course, the pandemic has made what were maybe choppy waters, like a Category 4 storm, and worse. Which problems are temporary, but which are here to stay for some time? Hey, great question. Uh, thank you for inviting me first and foremost to CNN, Paul. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to speak to you about this topic. I think, I think it's, it's structural challenges that, that becomes very obvious now. And it's, it's an industry that has been, you know, for decades, decades struggling on, on, with weak market conditions on the seller side. And, and, and in this case, that would be the shipping lines, right? <clears throat> and through that, they haven't had the ability to invest into the infrastructure that is required to let you know uh, these supply chains better absorb these di- types of shocks. And the situation we're now seeing in in Yantian is 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 you know an accumulated amount of of events that have has happened over the last I would say eighteen months. Think about it: from China shutting down to Europe shutting down, partially U.S. You had Brexit, congestions in L.A. and Sydney, port strikes at the East Coast ever given and then Yantian. These are just some of the events, right? And the infrastructure is sort of strained to the maximum where supply is in, in, in the wrong places of the world and, and empty boxes are hard, hard to get a hold of. And 
And the carriers have been struggling for, for decades with this. And then COVID comes like the perfect storm on this, right? So at this point, we're, you know, we're seeing a market that, that already now looks to have uh, putting Christmas season at risk. And, and if this continues over a longer period of time, there will be either new entrants uh, appearing or there will be political interest to step in, in, into this industry to, you know, help Asia uh, as, as the mecca or, or global hub of production remain there. I mean, the this consequences of this situation is, is potentially nearshoring as well, right? Yeah, it's so interesting that, that you say, uh, in fact, that Christmas here, that the supply chain through, to, uh, chain through to Christmas is at risk. You know, the increase in costs have been incredibly disruptive. I mean, some of the stuff that was in the research was eye-popping, 800% increase in the shipping costs in some cases. So where are the solutions that will actually have an impact on that cost structure and the supply chains? I mean, I notice here in the United States, there is a lot of pressure on the U.S. for them to do something on their ports and and infrastructure. But what will turn it around eventually? Yeah, as as you can see now, uh, a lot of the shipping lines are investing in in new builds and, and empty boxes. But these are all longer term initiatives, I mean, it will take a lot of time before they enter the market and and put any uh, relief to this industry. So the problem here is really that it's the shipping lines who struggle financially and are heavily in debt. They are now making a fortune, right? So you can see that on their earnings, it's it's through the roof. And they are the one that needs to fix the situation. But if you think about these decades of, of, of that I said was has been troubling, what is really their incentive to move fast on this when they are making such a good money, right? And this is partially the, the conundrum here that, that the cargo owners, the ones paying the shipping lines, the, the big companies we work with, whether it's you know General Mills, John Deere, Nestle, Electrolux, Unilever, all of these have enjoyed beneficial ocean freight rates for decades, whereas the supplier side has been trimmed down to a handful of companies that are now finally making a fortune out of these market conditions. And now we're hoping that they will, you know, fix it. But really, what is their incentive to do that in, in at least the short run? Yeah, and I hear you on that. And yet that's going to add to cost structure. If we talk about what some companies have been doing, they have been going to extraordinary lengths. What have you seen, given everything that you guys track in terms of timing and pricing? What are what are some of the companies doing just to try and get around some of this, get the goods where they want them to be? Yeah, I mean, we've seen anything from train uh, operating from Far East to Europe, as an example, which is, you know, less utilized before. But on the extreme side, you can find... Uh, situation like trucking from China to Europe, which is absolutely bizarre, even from an environmentally, oh yeah, God. even from an environmentally perspective. Perspective, and then then you can see Home Depot coming out with you know their own chartered vessel that will move on the Trans-Pacific just to feed, make sure that they get their goods uh, into the shelves, right? So this is all sort of signs of a very broken market. And before I let you go, I don't have a lot of time. Where does your company step in there in terms of how does Ineta help? Yeah, well, we help. We we empower them with market intelligence. We help them understand the market and, and what they need to pay in order to get shipped and which budget adjustments is really required when the market moves with several several hundred percentage points, right? And what does competitive freight rate rates really look like? 
And, and I also want to just mention that I'm really happy to announce that we raised the $28.5 million Series C round from a hedge fund in the US, uh, US named Luxor Capital, that we will you, you know, deploy the capital to provide even greater insights over the next few years to all companies navigating these rough waters. Sure thing. It will certainly help to make that uh, shipping market more incentive, more efficient. Uh, I hear you, though. Get those Christmas gifts early because this could really end up being a problem. Patrick Merlin, CEO of Zineda, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Patrick. Now, coming up next on First Move, putting fitness and wellness front and center. We speak to the CEO of Planet Fitness, which is seeing growth that's exceeding, yes, exceeding pre-pandemic levels. We'll see. pandemic has made many of us reassess our own health and well-being. Yeah, count me included. And some new numbers suggest many are acting on those concerns. One of the world's largest fitness brands, aptly called Planet Fitness, says more Americans, at least, are signing up for the gym than ever before. It says 40% of newcomers have never been to one before. Now, the fitness chain also says most of the new customers initially uh, initially opt for the digital subscription. What does that mean? We are now joined by the CEO of Planet Fitness. He is Chris Wando. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Before we get to that digital component, uh, you know, you are a fitness vet. You really are. Three decades in the business now almost. You've seen it all, right? And then came COVID. You guys say you didn't lose a single location due to COVID. How is that possible? Yeah, you know, a real testament to the brand and, and the model we have and our franchisees, quite frankly. Um, we have a great group of franchisees. They've been with us, you know, most of them since day one of franchising in 2003. And testament to the model, they're very well capitalized. We were able to weather the storm. Um, the industry has 17% of the gyms in this industry have permanently closed. And we not didn't lose one, one store. We have 2,100 plus locations, all 50 states and, and a couple of the countries. Now, I want to talk about this whole move to digital in a way. We talk about hybrid work a lot. This is really the hybrid workout. It's the app. It's digital. Everyone, though, is in the game now, not just Planet Fitness. What's your competitive advantage here? Yeah, I think what we really have here, and I look at digital fitness separate from home fitness. And digital fitness is really fitness anywhere, right? And we kind of started down this road even pre-COVID where people would be working out in our gyms and they'd be following a routine on their phone, but it wasn't getting it from Planet Fitness. So we went down this road pre-COVID to supply our members exercises so that they could learn how to use the equipment better and get better results, which would drive retention. Then when COVID happened, we saw people utilizing our content, but they were home because our gyms weren't open. So then we accelerated our digital strategy here to provide more and more at-home fitness so that now we're able to provide our members a bricks and mortar experience when they can. And when they can't because of convenience, they can do something at home. So it's better than any app you could possibly have because we have 2,100 locations you can utilize um, when your time allows. And at home, we can still engage our customer outside our four walls. So it's been, you know, people really accelerated their digital the digital life here with, with everything they do. Um, even our joins right now, Paula, we're signing up about 60 to 70% of our joins digitally. Um, and that was half of that in 2019. So they're joining either through our app or through the website. So it's life's changed. Life has certainly changed. And yet what, is this an app, uh, certainly based product that you guys are a- offering? And again, what does Planet Fitness have that maybe others won't? Because all of us are used to either going on an app or even going on YouTube, quite frankly, and kind of following along uh, with the workout. Is this different? 
Well, I think it's similar, but one thing that is different is our whole model, the judgment-free zone, our $10 a month price point, we really cater to casual and first-time gym members. And to your point, 40% of our joints pre-COVID have never belonged to a gym in their life, and 40% of our joints post-COVID are still never belonged to a gym in their entire life. So our content is directed to the first-timer or casual fitness person and not a fitness guru or making the fit get fitter. We really want to get people off the couch and get them active. Yeah, some of the things that you've pointed out are alarming because obesity, obviously, a problem in many, many countries, and, and this is something people have to pay attention to. Very difficult to, for all of us to pay attention to this during the pandemic. I want to talk to you a little bit about the larger economy. You know, what are you seeing out there? Are you having trouble hiring workers? Are you paying a lot more? What is the real estate projection? What are your franchisees telling you? Sure. So, you know, with the, the payroll in, in, in staffing, um, slightly, you know, we are, run our stores at about 15 employees. Luckily, it's not a huge workforce that we're trying to bring on board. And and a lot of our, our, our you know, who are competing with for customers or for, for staff would be um, fast food, um, QSRs, uh, retail. And, and I really feel a gym setting is a much more fun atmosphere to work in. So they tend to gravitate towards us and we've never really had an issue in the past. Um, real estate couldn't be better. I mean, it was good pre-COVID, quite honestly, even since like 2009, 2010. Uh, but now with the gym closures here in the U.S., uh, 17% of them have closed, like I mentioned. Um, it's only made it better for us. So it allows more real estate to open up for the franchisees to get back to development. Um, so, yeah, I couldn't be happier with it. So you're saying at your price point, because it is a different product compared to some of the upscale gyms, you're saying at your price point, you guys can still do this. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell you, you know, the one thing with our price point is I always had say that we build a $50 a month club. We just happen to sell it for $10 a month. We have some of the best equipment money can buy. They're 20,000 square feet, beautiful locker rooms. I mean, you'd really be surprised the product you get for 10 bucks a month, but it's really to get you off the couch. First timers, I can do this at 10 bucks a month. Let's give this a shot. And that's really what we what we want to do here. And, and, and we've made, you know, we've been here for almost 30 years now. I've uh, been through all kinds of economic climates uh, throughout this. We've made it through COVID without any closures. Thank God for the, the, the strength of the model and the profitability of this model. And, uh, and I don't see us ever changing that $10 price point. Yeah, Chris, it's a good point, right? You've been in this a long time, and is that price point maybe in the end that'll get a lot of us uh, off the couch, hopefully. Chris Wando, yeah. CEO of Planet Fitness, thanks so much. Really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Pleasure. Now, coming up, some of the world's most powerful beverage makers being kicked hard by football stars. Details next. Expo 2020, the world's largest in-person event to take place this year, opens this October in Dubai. Becky Anderson visits the woman responsible for delivering this event. in what is the beating heart of the expo site. This is the Al Wasl Plaza, and this is where people will gather during this six month event. What can we expect? Well, what we're really hoping for is when people do gather in this garden, that they see a phenomenal show, that when they come to the expo site, they have the opportunity to experience and explore countries from all around the world who are all present here as well. 
and uh, really use this as an opportunity to chart the path forward for what the next um, couple of years are going to look like. We are three and a half months out. We are still in a COVID crisis. How will that affect the visitor experience? So first, their safety is paramount. I mean, we're not compromising that at all. Uh, we also believe that there's enough science and there's enough metrics out there that show that wearing your mask, being distant, having a touch-free experience, being vaccinated, proper ventilation is all going to really help significantly in ensuring that this is a safe environment. Your target was for 25 million visits. Is that still a target? So we're very keen on fulfilling that 25 million visit target. Our mix is probably going to be a little bit different. Certainly in the beginning, we're going to rely a little bit more on domestic visitation as opposed to international visitation. Having said that, we think there's going to be a pretty good rebound. You're already seeing a little bit of that now in the summer. This isn't a cheap infrastructure project. It came at a cost of something like $7 billion. Will Expo 2020 deliver for the wider good of Dubai and the UAE? The investment was not to build an expo. The investment was to have a new city of the future. This is a 480 hectare site that's very well connected with you know, top-notch infrastructure, with 5G technology. What's interesting to me on a personal level is that I see how new technologies have emerged as a result of COVID. There's more of a focus on ag tech, there's more of a focus on biotech. There are new industries that can bring more value to the economy. This is the perfect place to be able to do that. And our thanks to Becky Anderson for that. Now, some of the world's biggest football stars have publicly snubbed sponsors at Euro 2020, which is nearing the end of its first week. Now, France's Paul Pogba uh, removed a Heineken bottle at a news conference. You see him do it there. That was after Tuesday's match. Earlier, Portugal's Christ Cristiano Ronaldo, no one less than that, removed two bottles of Coca-Cola as he sat down to take questions and held up a bottle of water instead i will say a bottle of water that was in a plastic bottle but nonetheless and an italian player also got into the act moving bottles of soft drinks around claire sebastian joins me now with more okay so we're gonna call this bottle gate i guess a trend claire I mean, three players, it, it sort of seems to be spreading. The videos, I think more importantly, uh, Paula, are going viral. And that is why this creates a bit of a delicate situation for the brands. Now, in terms of financial impact, it's not really material as of yet. We did see a, a little bit of a dip in Coke shares this week uh, on Monday morning. That, that, that does seem to be sort of a reaction, but it's also trending down with the broader market. Heineken shares though went up a little bit uh, after the, the, the Pogba incident. They've now come down a bit as well. So not super material when it comes to these companies' market cap, but a delicate PR moment for them, not least because of the huge exposure they get from these sports tournaments and the amplified sort of risk-reward of these relationships that, that, is, that is caused by the social media age. Ronaldo, not just uh, one of the top footballers of, of his age, but one of the most followed on social media. He has almost 300 million 
Instagram followers. So he is a, a, an extraordinarily powerful influencer. And that's why that moment was so powerful. We did get some responses. Coca-Cola referred us to a statement from UEFA where they basically made the point that they offer a, a range of different drinks and that players that turn up at these press conferences are offered both Coca-Cola, Coke Zero and, and water. Heineken uh, also treading carefully, saying that they respect everyone's decision when it comes to their beverage of choice. It should be noted Paul Pogba is a practicing Muslim, so, so likely to avoid alcohol, even though we know that that drink uh, on, the, on the table there at that press conference was actually a zero alcohol Heineken. Uh, but look, it, it, it is a, a sort of a risk-reward moment for these companies that the sports sponsorships, huge exposure, versus the, the, the players who now have to look after their own brands in the social media age, Paula. Yeah, I don't have a lot of time left here, but do, do we think that this is really going to revive that debate between should you have alcohol in these drinks even within sports sponsorship? I think it is going to revive that debate. This is an age-old debate, Paula. Should sports, which inherently promote fitness and wellness, be associated with brands that, that science has shown perhaps lead to sort of less healthiness among the people who consume them? I think it's clear that that is going to be hotly debated. We know that, for example, tobacco products are, are severely limited from their relationships with sports tournaments, teams, and, and, and individuals in a number of countries. I think the question now is, are we going to get right. a, a movement that, that wants unhealthy, quote-unquote, unhealthy food to be treated the same. But of course, on the flip right. side, these companies spend, spend millions, billions of dollars uh, you know, supporting these sports franchise, yeah. uh, franchises without which they, you know, they, they yeah, would so, have sort yeah. of lesser exposure. Yeah, in some ways they make it all possible. Uh, an interesting debate, which we'll continue to cover here. Claire Sebastian, thanks so much. And finally to this, one of the world's largest diamonds has been unearthed in Botswana. The, get this, 1,098 carat stone is believed to be the third largest gem quality diamond ever found. It was discovered earlier this month. Botswana is Africa's largest producer of diamonds. Won't be putting it on my hand, that is for sure. That's it for the show. Thanks for joining us. Connect the World is next with Becky Anderson. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.